Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Gadi Shamia is the Chief Operating Officer at TalkDesk, and for the last three and a half years, he has operated as the COO at TalkDesk. TalkDesk is the uh, fastest growing SaaS contact center startup with thousands of customers like Shopify, IBM, Pete's Coffee, Dropbox, Peloton, Stitch, Fix, and 2U. Um, TalkDesk is funded by Draper Fisher Jervison, Salesforce Ventures, and Storm Ventures, twice named um, in uh, the Forbes Cloud 100 list, was listed as the Forbes Next Billion Dollar Company or Unicorn, and is also the youngest company ever to make the Gartner's CSAS Magic Quadrant. So pretty cool stuff going to be coming up. At TalkDesk, Gadi is responsible for product, post-sales, renewals, customer service, professional sales, training, customer support, business development, channels, talent, legal, and people, and also supporting the CEO on all other areas. He's got 20 years of experience in software, 13 years in SaaS. He founded three companies, has also been the CEO at prior companies as well. Largest company that he um, founded ended up doing a billion dollars a year in global business. And we're going to be talking a lot around hiring and communication and leadership. Um, I actually really enjoyed this interview with Gadi and really looking forward to being able to share it with you as well. Gads, why don't you tell us how you, uh, how you got started with TalkDesk, where you kind of came into it and what kind of experience set you up for this? Once you become old enough, it's, it's uh, hard to um, walk anyone through your, um, uh, your resume because it's, it's long and boring. Uh, but I, I did start my career in, in, in technology somehow as an accident. I was um, studying accounting and economics uh, in Tel Aviv University, and a friend of a friend introduced me to, um, to an entrepreneur. Uh, it was not called this way back then that, that uh, started a company. It was not called a startup back then. Um, and I was looking for just someone smart. Uh, and apparently, I, um, um, I, I fit that bill somehow. Uh, and, I, and I joined this company. It was uh, almost a garage. We actually worked out of um, uh, the warehouse of a, a, the closing store of, uh, of the uh, uh, other founder's wife. Uh, and, um, and we built an, an ERP software for um, uh, SMB customers in, um, in the, for the Israeli market. It was a pretty exciting uh, opportunity for me. I you know, never worked with uh, with technology. I was not a software engineer, uh, but the, uh, the the new creations every day, the new challenge, and new tasks uh, that that we had to uh, to overcome were um, were huge challenge and, and helped me um, uh, really shaped uh, the way I think about uh, about working and and leading, but also being a part of a startup. Uh, so this was the first part of my journey, and and again, I can talk for hours, but yeah, and Gaddy, had you had you focused on software engineering in in school or as part of your education, or did you just dive right into a software business? No, you know when when I went to school, which which uh, was in the early nineties, uh, it was not cool to study software engineering. If you look at what, what which were the hardest faculties to get into um, uh, back then, was accounting, economics, um, you know, business administration, and law. It was actually trivial to get into uh, into computer science in the best universities in in Israel. So I didn't really even think about it as a um, uh, as a career opportunity for myself. I thought of myself as a business person. I want to study something that will help me in in business. I want to be practical. So I studied accounting and, and economics as a practical 
um, um, type of of, uh, of subject. Um, and I didn't I, I didn't really practice as an accountant, but uh, this background helped me uh, build uh, an ERP product, which is now used by um, tens of thousands of businesses around the world. So okay, so you you actually dive, dove into one of the subjects that I was scared to death of in in college, which was accounting and finance. And one of the things I notice about COOs or second in commands is they often run varying business areas. Um, we're really kind of the yin and yang to the CEO. So uh, with TalkDesk, what are you running in terms of your, um, you know, what falls underneath you and what, what falls under in terms of the org chart under the CEO? And you know, this is an interesting point because I, I met uh, during the last few years many CEOs and each one of them have somehow a different mix. Uh, and I think it's, yeah. as you describe it correctly, it's a yin and yang and, and it's not classically CEOs run the back office, CEOs run the front. In many companies, it's really just based on what the CEO and the CEO uh, want to do and, uh, and are good at. So right. I talk to some, I'm running um, a, a really interesting mix. I'm running product. Um, a lot of it because of my product background. Uh, I'm running the uh, uh, the channel initiative again. A lot of it because of my, my channel background. Uh, I run everything post-sales, which is our uh, customer success team, professional services, uh, support and training. Uh, I run talent, HR, uh, probably our yeah, platform initiative and, and several other areas where the CEO runs sales, marketing, and uh, engineering and finance. Um, so despite my accounting background, uh, in our case, uh, the CEO runs finance as well. Oh, interesting. So that's the, so you had an accounting background. Now, did, did the CEO have an accounting or finance background or they just decide to keep that as part of you know, their focus? You know, we had we had when I joined Talkdesk, we had a twenty minutes conversation of what will make sense uh, when it comes <laughs> to splitting the company, and this is how it uh, how it stuck. Let's kind of dive in and let's do it. Now, it wasn't Talkdesk that was the small startup in the garage, was it, or or was that? No, no, Talkdesk okay. was a small startup in a in a stuffy uh, office in Mountain View. It was not very large when I joined it. So what is it that's part of your makeup that has you joining, you know, I guess one of your first early stage companies so early, we're kind of working out of a warehouse and then, you know, joining um, TalkDesk as a, as a small entrepreneurial startup. What is it that's part of your DNA that makes that either exciting or interesting versus getting into, you know, um, a bigger organization like a Salesforce right across the street? So, so I skipped some point, some points in the way. Um, when I joined um, Top Manage and, and, and helped build this company, I was 20-something, uh, 23 or 4. Um, and for me, it was great to work out of this warehouse. It was pretty fancy. I came from the military and, and lived in tents. And, uh, um, and, and so this was exciting for me. It was very different. Uh, it was... Um, it was touching technology, working with Mac computers that uh, uh, that were pretty fancy back then. So it was very, very different. This company ended up being acquired by SAP. So I did spend six years um, at SAP as a as a senior VP and a GM, and had a chance to uh, kind of live life and and fly over the world in, in business class and go to fancy hotels and have a driver pick me up and you know everything else that uh, um, the senior role in a in a large um, organization affords you. Uh, but I didn't get the same level of excitement and, mm-hmm. and, uh, that you get in a, in a small, fast moving, moving startup. Uh, and I, when I left, uh, left SAP, actually my son asked me, why would you do that? I think they paid you a lot of money. And, mm-hmm. and he obviously was like, I think it was 10 back then. I said, yes, they paid me a lot of money, but it's not enough, son. Uh, and I think that part of me is, is really interested in the building and, and the novelty of, of different challenges every day. Uh, solving your problem every day and, and, and challenging a status quo, but, 
rather than maintaining a status quo. So a lot of what drives me is is uh, how can you take something that is still small and not necessarily fully shaped and shape it. And, and even during my time at SAP, this is this was actually my role because um, I was leading a whole new uh, area at SAP, the, the SMB space. Uh, but once the S- SMB space became mainstream, it was not as exciting anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's actually part of what makes the COO role fun as well as we actually do get to see the fruits of our labor. You know, we're, we're in that um, operational kind of make it happen role. We get to help the CEO um, either design or implement the vision, but we also get to see because we're kind of in that leadership role, we get to, our work actually gets used. Um, how, how have you continued to grow your skill set over the years? You know, it's, it's a hard question to ask. I think you, you learn through um, seeing problems, solving problems, making mistakes, and, and not ignore your mistakes. So the, the, only, the only real advice um, I have to people is be really honest with the mistakes you're making. I'm looking back at Octus, and, and I'm, I'm in tech for over 20 years, and I think of the, my time at Octus as probably one of the top three learning uh, and growth opportunities I had in my in my career because how fast this company grew. Um, so you, you look back and, and you ask yourself, where do I grow? Um, and even when you're 40 or 50 or 60, you have to continue to ask this, uh, this question, how can I continue to grow? What will challenge me? And what challenges you is actually just taking a lot of action, doing a lot of things because when you do things, you, you get good results, somehow good results and horrible results. And if you don't ignore the outcomes, you can learn from it. The person you hired and was a wrong hire and, and how you dealt with it. Uh, and the person you hired was a phenomenal hire. And, and, and you know how you promote this person, gave them latitude. So a lot of my learning and growth is really just paying attention to my mistakes and, and not ignoring them and not blaming them on somebody else. So you're pretty introspective as well then. Do you I try like, to, and we, we all, we, we all, I think, tell ourselves a story. It, it's not, um, it's not common, and, and memories are, are, are funny this way. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think if, if you only tell yourself a story, you're never going to grow. If you're always going to be the person say, "Trust me, I've done before," um, you're never going to grow because what you've done before is irrelevant. The world is, is changing all the time. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true. Um, and if the world is changing all uh, all the time, and you have done it before, and this is your claim to fame. Then you're not growing that much, and you're probably um, building what needed to be built 15 years ago, but not what you need to do today. Okay, so so I'm talking about what we need to do today versus even 15 years ago. The the whole business climate, the business world, all the the technology tools that are coming now, it's it's happening faster and faster. It seems. So, what are you doing, and what are you doing for the organization to ensure that you guys stay ahead of the curve on everything? It's a good or complex question. The first thing that I, I think you need to do is is be part of this change. Uh, you cannot, you know, my, my father is almost 90 years old. And when when um, uh, Google launched Google Docs, he was probably 80. He sent me um, some of my financial information he was, he was managing for me back in Israel on a Google Docs and see how cool it is we can collaborate on it. Okay. So at 80 years old, was one of the earliest adopters of, um, uh, of Google Docs. And was enjoying the fact we can collaborate across uh, uh, across continent uh, on, on a financial spreadsheet, and I'm I'm seeing myself and, and trying to be the same person. Uh, when when the scooters in San Francisco, I jump with them and give them a try. When when you know the jump bicycle, I try to go around and and use them as this new technology. I try to use them as well because without being a, without immersing yourself in everything new. Uh, you will never be able to to use it. You cannot actually look at the world and say, "Oh, it's changing. I'm too old for that. Um, it's not for me. It's for kids." 
um, you know, Snapchat is for kids because something to learn about Snapchat and from Snapchat, even in the enterprise. There's something to learn from blockchain. There's all these new technologies are some are interesting, even if they're only tangential. So part of what I'm trying to do is is, is immerse myself in, in everything new and hang out with people from all ages. So my friends are, are 20 years younger than me. Some of them are 20 years older than me. And and being being uh, around people from from all ages and, and all areas is, is really helpful. Um, so the first, I think, the first and most important part of it is just be part of this of the technological uh, um, change and really understand it, rather than saying, you know, what well, this is for the new company. Uh, when you look at, at older companies and 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 they develop uh, really slow, a lot of it is because they they think that their magic sauce um, or secret sauce is about the technology they build a product on or about what customers want 10 years ago and not about this changing market. Uh, so, so keep thinking about it, keep being part of it, keep trying to be part of this world. To me, is, is the, uh, the best thing I could do to bring back this, uh, uh, this innovation to the company. So when you're, when you're so open to innovation and change and what's happening and what's new and you're, you're kind of exploring, how are, how are you staying in the day-to-day? Do you, do you devote a, a certain portion of your time to kind of focusing on operations and execution and um, and a sum around kind of the future of where we're going or is thinking about the future and change just part of your your view of strategy for the company? Kind of walk us through your mindset around that. It's more of the latter. I, I don't claim to be um, the, uh, the your, your typical uh, operational person that, that kind of organize their day into blocks of one hour. I wish I could. Uh, my brain doesn't work this way. Um, so my, my day is, a, is more of a mashup of, of many different things. Uh, I try to focus on what's most important at any given time. I think that uh, vision strategy uh, actually happen naturally when you um, uh, when you do everything else. So my role uh, puts me in a position of meeting a lot of customers. Um, so I, I have a lot of conversation both with prospects and customers, and each one of them teaches you different things. Uh, the prospect teaches you about what they want and how they see the future. The customers give you a, a really good view of what you do well and what you don't, and uh, and how can you help them. Uh, I'm in my specific role, I actually call customer service a lot. I ask my wife. I, I volunteer to take care of our own uh, customer service calls because I want to experience uh, how it feels as a customer to call 50 different companies and, and get service from them. Uh, I use a lot of our, our uh, customers' products so I can <laughs> in the queues, call their customer service and see how, how, um, how it goes. And I have a really good icebreaker with, um, uh, with my customers. Uh, so all this all this mesh up helps um, uh, creates the um, create this view of what what the company needs to go. I spend a lot of time with CEO and and understand his uh, his vision as well. He started a company. He got to where it is. Uh, his vision is critical. Um, and and this is what's unique about companies. It's not necessarily the uh, the hired help. It's actually the vision that started a company that still need to live um, within. And all this kind of create a mesh up of of what I think the um, uh, the company strategy is. Uh, but you know, may- maybe a- another way to answer that is that when you hire really good people, and and um, uh, all the areas I'm, I'm running have really good leaders, the operation part become less um, uh, less less taxing, and and you can uh, focus on helping them make some of the harder decisions and some of the in some of the areas that they, they they're not sure about. But you don't have to manage it day to day, and and this is the the biggest gift you can you can get from your leadership team is, is the gift of not needing to manage their day-to-day. Mm. So how do you, okay, so, so walk me through, first off, how do you stay in sync with the CEO on his vision? And um, are there systems used for that? Is there meeting rhythms you have? How do you, you know, get on the same page and stay on the same page? 
Um, and then secondly, um, yeah, how do you how do you try to free up time and, and do you work on helping your your direct reports free up their time? So so it's um I think there's not much you can learn from the way I, I uh, interact with uh <laughs> with Tiago uh here because he, he is um he's different probably from anybody else that, that I know. Uh he's he's uh he's young, he's thirty one years old. Um a lot of the communication is is uh various forms of chat. We probably chat 50 times uh, a day in, in all sort of um, uh, weird hours of day and night. Uh, and we meet a lot informally. Actually, don't we don't have a lot of organized one-on-ones, but we'll grab a lunch here or just take a walk here or go go for a drink or sometimes just socialize together. Um, and, and we never really socialize and, and don't think about work. Even when we go have a drink or, or um, uh, go out sometime when we, tra- when we travel, it's really a mix of talking about work and personal stuff and, and get this... Uh, this trust built that is essential for um, this type of work, and I would say as a general advice here is, is you have to communicate with uh, with your CEO the way he wants or she wants to communicate with. Um, you cannot really say, oh, you know, I have to have uh, uh, the, the you know uh, the one on one Monday on Friday. I heard this is what Cheryl and and, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg are doing. Uh, everyone has different cadence based on how they think about things, and, and our cadence is much more continuous than. Um, uh, than formal meetings at the beginning of and uh, of every week. Uh, to me, part of my trick too is is um, there are certain topics I'll, I'll bring in chat, there are certain topics I bring over the phone, there are certain topics I bring in person. Uh, so knowing the person you work with really well helps me um, uh, decide which topics I want to discuss right now because they're urgent, and which topics can wait two three weeks uh, for uh, the right time for an in-person conversation. Um, being patient is actually a, a really good skill for uh, for a CEO. Very good skill. Now, are you guys operating under the same office space or are you um, in different offices or different cities? Uh, we're in the same office space. Uh, with travel schedule, we uh, sometimes don't see each other for a month, a month and a half, um, where we uh, we don't overlap for uh, uh, for a long period of time, but uh, but we work of the same office and, and we try to spend a good amount of time together. Uh, one, of, one of my mantras over the years has been that the leader's job is to grow people. And I've just always believed that the more that we grow our direct reports and the more we help them grow their direct reports in terms of growing their operational skills, their leadership skills, any of the soft skills of, of management, the faster the company will accelerate. Um, do, do you, can you kind of give me any of your insights on growing people? Um, and then secondly, you know, what mantras do you operate by or do you um, kind of keep front of mind or? It, it, to, to me, the most important uh, thing for any leader that worth their their uh, uh, their pay is uh, they want to have a sense of of uh, agency. They want to uh, be the one driving their um, their unit and and um, and making decisions. And if you go back to how I learn, which is doing and making mistakes, you can't learn if you only execute someone else's uh, ideas because then it's never your mistakes. Your mistakes are actually in the way you you uh, carried um, the operation, but not necessarily a decision led to it. So if you if you uh, if this is the way I learn, this is the way I want my direct reports to learn. And I honestly try to be as little as possible um, uh, in their way and give them as much freedom as possible. Uh, and I often tell them, "Don't listen to me," <laughs> or "Here's my opinion, but call BS any at any time because I'm not sure I'm right." Um, and and I, I encourage that because I don't want people to think that if I said something, um, it is more important than um, uh, than what they said. In some cases, we formalize it. For example, we uh, in the hiring process and what we call tribals, we actually going to talk by by seniority. So the more senior people will talk last. 
So we don't yeah. create, a, a, you know, if I don't like someone, we don't bias everybody else. But in some other cases, you will have an opinion nobody else will talk and you want to make sure that, that you're challenged. And part of my trick here is say, I think I may be wrong, so please don't take it as, uh, as gospel, but here's what I think. Uh, do you think differently? Or call my BS if you think, think it's, I'm BSing. And sometimes people do that. Yeah. Uh, but again, go, going back, if you, if you don't give people freedom, then you're not, you're not going to get much out of them. And you actually don't need to hire very senior people. If you yeah. want to run a company with, with 100, 200 uh, people and they're just going to carry your, your, um, uh, your decisions, you actually can hire pretty junior people. They may love it. But if you hire senior people who want to grow, um, part of growing is doing, deciding, and making your own mistakes and learn from them. Yeah, that's a huge lesson, by the way. So many people try to hire senior people and they don't treat them like senior people at all. Um, and I think you you touched on something that I covered in my book, Meetings Suck. I was trying to really codify how companies can run really great meetings. And one of the systems I put in there was that leaders should speak last. And that we, you know, you even touched on that, that you don't want to sway the group. You don't want your comments to, um, to steer them in a direction. So I think it's a really powerful lesson for sure. And you also need to need to know yourself. And I think when you have um, when you have a stronger personality, and many people um, uh, in in this area have strong personality and strong opinions, you're not going to change. You're not going to become um, someone else that that uh, doesn't have an opinion or, or always uh, speak with question marks. And I try to do that, but it's more of a tactic than than, than a strategy. I I have strong opinions about things, and uh, Tiago, my CEO, has strong opinions about things. And and if you want to allow others to have, to have opinions as well, uh, you you can't really hide your opinions, but you can you can just handicap them by saying I may be wrong. It may not be true. I didn't do the the, the homework. I don't have the research to support it. And and you leave a lot of openings to um mm. uh, to be, for people to contradict you, but also look for people that will. Um, if you're if you're a strong personality, you need to look for other people with strong personalities, so so they feel comfortable challenging you. Uh, if you if you are a strong personality and you hire a bunch of yes people, uh, you're not you're, nobody's ever going to challenge you. And no one's even like if you you make all the yeah if you make all the comments in the world and say hey challenge me if you don't have strong people around you they're not going to challenge you. Yeah, I, we we started an organization called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands and. Um, one of our members was kind of rolling his eyes recently thinking about his CEO and he said that he really doesn't even give me a chance to chime in. It's just kind of his way or the highway. And I'm really starting to see a fracture there that, that this guy really needs to get something changing or he's going to lose a really strong hire as well. Um, with, with, your, with your growth in terms of the hiring of people, you mentioned that um, you, know, you want people that are going to challenge you and, and be strong leaders. So how do you identify strong leaders in the interview process or, or how do you even go ahead of the interview process in the, you know, the job postings and the recruiting? How do you recruit strong leaders? I wish I had all the right answers for that. Um, <laughs> then I will never make hiring mistakes uh, ever again. I, I discovered something interesting about myself uh, when there are rare cases when I actually really know the right person, uh, the person sitting in front of me is the right person. It's, it's, it's rare. It happens twice a year, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and in this cases, I was never wrong. When I feel super strong about someone, uh, I'm yet to be, uh, to be wrong, but it's happened uh, you know, pretty rarely. And I'm also still hiring people that are, that become really strong. And I didn't feel this way uh, from the beginning. So the first thing I learned is that when I feel really, really strong about someone, I probably don't, I usually don't make a mistake and, and this person should be hired. I don't know why, uh, what is this feeling? How's it, how does it happen? But I think it's a combination of seeing someone really driven 
uh, that know what they want, uh, understand uh, how to get it done, and can describe how they've, how they've done before. Uh, but it's also something which I cannot explain. I can go back and say, here are all the people I really felt 10 minutes in that, that they um, are the right people, but there's not much in common between them. Um, the different genders, the different races, there are different steps in the stages in their career for different roles, and there's something about them, and maybe it's experience that made me feel very strongly about them. Uh, when it comes to the uh, the vast majority, I think there's several uh, there are things you, you have to do, and, and the first one is uh, don't only trust yourself. Uh, open the interview process to as many people as possible in the organization. Make sure they know what you're looking for. Uh, make sure they know you. It's not really useful to bring someone that just joined two weeks ago and ask them to participate in an interview process if they don't know uh, what the company wants and, and what you want. And do a lot of, of um, uh, back channel um, uh, reference check. Uh, don't rely on, on, on HR to do reference checks for you. Don't rely on, on the references the um, uh, the candidate gives you, but do uh, a lot of reference checks and, and do them yourself and ask the question that you are worried about. Um, you know, not too long ago, I interviewed a, a senior leader that I ended up not hiring, and there are several question marks that that, um, that I had during the, uh, the interview, and I spent probably five hours uh, reaching out to different people, uh, having long half an hour conversation until I was able to validate in this case that I was right in my, in my instinct and the, the person um, was not truthful in the interview process. But yeah. I had to spend this time, otherwise I would have had um, the, the wrong candidate. You, you may have just touched on it. I know you've got a few, but I think you may have just touched on one of the core, core, core reasons why you're successful and it's your interviewing, hiring and reference check process. Um, even though you said, you know, you wish you were right more often or had it all figured out. The fact that you actually spend that much time, you're one of only a few um, senior leaders I've ever spoken to. And I'm very much like you all. I did 12 reference checks on a guy, Christopher Bennett years ago, seven business or seven personal five business to people. He didn't give me the names for I dug up and then made him get me their contact info. And it was because my spider senses were saying that there's no way this kid at 23 years old could really be as good as he said. He was almost like a Renaissance man. And, and I was like, but it seems like my, my spider senses are saying he is, but if he really is that good, people must hate him. And I just needed to know. Turns out everybody I spoke to said the kid was amazing. And one of them was his current boss at the time. He said, wow, you've got my best guy. And Christopher Bennett ended up literally being kind of one of the core reasons why 1-800-GOT-JUNK became what it was. He was a huge cultural hire for us. But it was the reference checks that, that made it okay to go in and make that hire. Um, and, and trusting your gut, I'm, I'm the same. Like I've had only probably three people that I can remember in my career, David Crombie, Mark Rubin, um, and then maybe Christopher Bennett that I just kind of knew at my gut level out of hundreds that I've hired at my gut, gut, gut level, like, yeah, they're going to be amazing. Like you just know, right? So do you trust your gut in other decisions in the business or do you kind of operate more under Google? Like, I don't care what you think. I need to know what the data is. It's a little bit of both. I, I, I actually want, I trust my gut a lot. And I think as a, um, uh, as, a, as a senior leader, when you're a little far away from, um, uh, from, from the day-to-day data, what I often ask people is, uh, don't try to outgut me. Uh, my gut will win. <laughs> um, the CEO's <laughs> gut will win because we are more senior, we're more experienced. And, and um, you know, Biago started a company. His gut will win uh, every time. You come with data. And you come with research, and then you can, you know, persuade my gut that I'm wrong. 
so I, I tend to, I, I, want to, I like to look at data. I think data is super important. I always ask, uh, in, say, product meetings, start with the data, start with the research, start with what, how you form your opinion. Because if you just have an opinion, my opinion will win. So part of, part of it is, is, is knowing where, how you, that you need to challenge your gut because it's going to be right in many cases, but your gut is actually a reflection of your past. Yes. It's not a reflection of the future. Uh, it's your what we call gut is our total experiences. It's it's a, it's a very normal thing, and if we remember that our gut actually is a reflection of the past and not of the future, we need to allow ourselves to keep challenging it because otherwise we're gonna we're gonna continue doing um, the same things over and over again. Is why I'm asking keep keep challenging me, keep bringing data, keep showing me something else, and I will be convinced. But don't tell me my gut feels this because it's it's a very hard argument to win with somebody more senior than you. That's a really interesting perspective that our gut is a reflection. Because I've always looked at the gut as kind of our human computer, right? And and the gut is a reflection of our past. That if we're building a company into the future, everything, the rules all change. The use of technology change. The way businesses are running. The the speed of change. Um, the people that were good working with us ten years ago probably aren't going to be as good, or or they need to be very different going forward. Yeah, and and part of of um, the appeal for me of joining a company where um, uh, the CEO back back at that time, founder and CEO, was under thirty, um, and did pretty well um, growing the company until until I joined. Was there's something that he does and he knows that I don't. It's a, maybe it's the, uh, the, the the years between us. Maybe this the fact he came from Portugal and come from a different culture, uh, and maybe it's, it's the composition of his, his character. But there's something he knows and he does, and I don't. If I own, uh, always going to tell them you're wrong, I'm right because I'm experienced, then I'm going to, again, I'm going to build the past. So part of building the future is, is collaborating with people who think differently than you. And, and you know, they may be wrong because it's, it's, it doesn't mean you, you, your gut is, is right probably 80% of the time. And what's worked in the past, probably going to work in the future 80% of the time. But you always need to seek for this 20% uh, because mm-hmm. the 80% is, you know, what's right is right. Um, if you, if you, uh, there's some basic things that, that will always be true. If you run out of money, your company is going to, going to see, see some operating. This is true. There's no need to argue it. It was true in the past. It will be true in the future. Uh, but there are things that are not, uh, uh as, as, uh, black and white. And, and for this, you need to, um, to really work with people, challenge you. And it doesn't matter if they're the founders or not, or, or, or new employees that just joined. Uh, somebody will always be able to tell you something. The, the onus of proving it is um, is higher when you're when you're more more junior or when or less experienced. That's interesting, uh, and I love that you're actually making people think and debate it as well because that's growing their skill sets too. This is a, a random question that just kind of came to me, and it's um, it's it's really related to um, the organization as a whole, kind of the org chart and structure. Um, I was just kind of thinking about Zappos and, and this organizational structure that Tony Shea tried to implement a few years ago with kind of the flat organization, no titles. Do you guys, what's your org chart look like? How do you operate with, you know, an organizational structure and titles, et cetera? Uh, you know, we are, we are, we operate in a, in a, in a environment where a lot of people uh, care about titles. And, um, I think Zappos had a unique opportunity to hire in a, in a place that didn't, didn't really have, um, a deep rooted culture of titles and, and VPs and EVPs and RVPs and, um, and so on. Uh, when you bring in people from, uh, Salesforce and LinkedIn and, and, um, uh, and, you know, companies in the Valley, they expect to have titles. So, we're not, not very different. Uh, we have VPs here. We have directors. Uh, we try not to have too many layers. Uh, so for us, uh, a VP is someone who can own an area. An SVP is something someone can own multiple areas. 
we have only one C-level person or two C-level person uh, people, um, CEO and myself. Uh, and and we're trying to keep it as such. We're trying not to create inflation of of uh, titles. But honestly, I do understand that in some point of time, this is what Salesforce did in in uh, in 05 or six. You have to create more layers because people want to see growth. Yeah. Uh, and and speci- especially now, um, people want to see uh, every year or two. They want to see a promotion and, and and a career growth. And if you don't have enough enough layers, you can demonstrate. It's only about money. It's about uh, public recognition. Uh, you're going to end up losing some good people that, that want to see this career progression. So we're not that religious about that. Um, I think there's, there's, a, there's being flat in titles, but also being flat in communication uh, and a way to work directly with people. And I will tell you, this, this company, if the CEO wants to uh, uh, run an idea by, uh, by a product manager, he does it. And uh, we don't care that there's two, three layers between the CEO and the product manager and nobody takes it personally. So why was it not to see it on this email? Like, you have a question, ask it. You want to run an idea, do it. Uh, it doesn't make the company less effective. Good for you. Yeah, you're kind of avoiding all the bureaucracy and the pain in the ass of it, but still giving structure that people need day to day too. Like people, humans still want to know where they fit and where they line up. And I completely agree on the uh, the need for titles and for um, for roles as people are moving up in the organization too. So how do you? Um, how are you guys competing in the Bay Area? I mean, you're in a very very competitive environment in the last few years you, there's a you know, been a lot of talk about companies even leaving the bay area because it's so hard to keep talent let alone get it how are you guys um you know competing and, and winning in the war on talent what are you doing that, that's working well for you uh, you know i have to acknowledge that this is an area that we don't we don't have a really good answer um so talk this has uh three main locations uh, we have um most of our r&d is actually in portugal in lisbon and in porto uh, this is where the company started where the first uh, engineers came from uh, so one of the advantages we have is that um, in in Lisbon and in Porto, we are one of the top three, four startups that people want to join. Uh, so the war in talent there, uh, because the uh, uh, the tech industry is, is newer, uh, is, is simpler for us. And we build a really strong brand of uh, of a company with advanced technology, with uh, uh, great um, uh, great challenges for for engineers. And almost every engineer in in Lisbon and and uh, Porto will interview a talk there. So. One one big area for us, which is R and D and and um, and some of the other areas, is, is actually covered by the fact that we uh, end up starting the company in um in a smaller location and became one of the top three startups in in the country, which gives us um this this uh, amazing access to talent and and the ability to um uh, to hire and retain uh, really good engineers um, that that. From education perspective, from experience perspective, are very similar to the one we would be able to uh, to hire here, if not better, um, be- because we have the first pick on on most every every engineer. Uh, we have a second location in Salt Lake City, and the reason we have a location there is that uh, one of our biggest competitor in contact is um, uh, is there, and and a lot of the, co- the the company was acquired a couple of years ago. A lot of people are leaving the company now, uh, and it was just an opportunity for us to hire good talent in an area where that really cares about the problems that we're solving, which is another very important piece. Do you really join a company because you care about the mission or just a cool tech company that grows fast and you want it on your resume? And a lot of the people we, we hire uh, in, um, uh, in Salt Lake actually really care about the mission. They want to build a better customer service platform and, and they care about our mission and therefore they join. And San Francisco, which I kept kind of last, is much more challenging uh, there, there is a combination of people that uh, want to join because they they um, um, 
they care about our mission and they care about what, what we do. But a lot of people join because they want a great name on their resume. Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard. Uh, it's an objective problem that is hard to resolve. And and in recent conversations with um, other CEOs and CEOs and investors, I think we, I, I actually said I think we need to acknowledge that uh, in San Francisco. Uh, an average tenure of employee might be um, anything between a year and a half to two. Uh, great one that, that got multiple career uh, promotions will maybe stay for three years. But we're looking at different job markets where uh, you will have you, you have people coming and going uh, in the course of a couple of years and needs to impact training, onboarding, um, and, and other hiring strategies uh, because the market is changing. Uh, listen, I, I don't blame anyone here for a 20-some um, years old uh, employee that maybe uh, graduated a couple of years ago, it's a Disneyland of opportunities, uh, and and all of them look very very similar. And again, think of think of somebody at Disneyland like, oh, how do I decide which ride do I go first? I think a lot of it come is is because of that. It's a great time. The the, the economy is booming. The San Francisco economy is booming. Uh, people have a lot of opportunities, and it's hard for them to choose. Yeah, no, you're right, and and I think that's um, it's smart to actually even understand that as an organization too. That that we have to attract people, we've got to try to retain people, and then also have a reasonable ideas on how long they're really going to stay. Because um, I'm surprised you even said a year and a half to two. I probably would have gone like nine months to eighteen months in the Bay Area, but it's nice to hear that they are staying a little bit longer. So I want to wrap up with just one question, and it's not a it's not a framed question that I ask everybody, but I'm just curious for you, what's the core um, you know, if you were to give advice to someone going into a second in command role for the first time, regardless on the size of the organization, um, what would that, what would kind of the one, you know, big lesson be that, that, um, you would pass on? I would say really focus on, on number one, um, and, and on the number one in this case and make sure that a, there's something about this person you deeply respect, because if you come to an organization, you think you're better than than the uh, founder CEO in any in any way you can imagine. Just this is a, a big red flag. Don't join. You have to have this this person have to have at least one towering strength that you respect um, and you want to learn from and you want to work with. Uh, it's it's very it's it's clear that that uh, many of the second in commands are going to be better in many other things than the founder CEO. Uh, but if you don't have one thing you really respect about this person, it's not going to work. You're going to continue right. fighting because you think you're going to better better in everything than this person. So I would I would look at this if there's one thing um, I, I would look at this one thing and 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 ask myself, do I respect this person? Is there something special about this person that I want to learn from? If not, just walk. It's never going to work. I love that. And and it's interesting. I was doing an interview with Forbes magazine with the print edition about a month and a half ago on an article on female COOs. And um, they were saying that, you know, most, the the interviewer said, well, most COOs, most second in commands, you know, obviously want to be CEOs someday. And I went, yeah, not really. Like from, from the group that I've seen, it feels like an awful lot of the second in commands are really, really happy being in that role and they don't ever want to be the entrepreneur or the CEO. Is that similar for you or do you have aspirations to move into a CEO role someday once you've kind of continued to build out TalkTask? So, so I've been in, in, uh, in leadership positions where I was the, uh, uh, the leader and I've been, I've, I've been number two. I've experienced this even in the army uh, as a company commander, but before that as a deputy to a company commander and I enjoy both. I think there's something special about being number one that you cannot get by being number two. And the most important part of that, the most important part of being number one to me is being able to uh, fully control or fully influence the culture and and uh, and the spirit of the company. And this is something you cannot really do uh, mm. as number two. And I and I often miss it. 
Uh, mm. So I, I, I say that I, I will probably uh, be a CEO or probably maybe be again a CEO. Um, and and uh, I tend to flex part of I mean, my personalities. I tend to flex and, and look for what's the right opportunity for me at, the, at any specific moment. But I do like um, uh, being number one. And I do like being number two with the right number one. Well, it sounds like you've got a great number one that you're working with and also a great path ahead of you with TalkDesk as well. So, Gadi Shamia, thank you um, sincerely for the time that you spent today and for some of the insights you gave us. I've, I was scribbling notes the whole time, and I can't wait to re-listen to this as well. I think it was great talking with you. And I was just seeing a 1-800 junk truck just driving under me as we as we were speaking. <laughs> That's funny. I actually left 1-800-GOT-JUNK 11 years ago next week. I left as the COO there. I that was a long time past, but that was a great, great part of our career for sure. Gadi, thanks very much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, take care. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.